and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 tonight. I would like to read to us verses 13 through 15 for time, um, and we will be, for the next few Sunday nights at least, working through this chapter, but we start tonight reading verses 13 through 15. Let us again listen uh, to the Lord's word. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And then just for further context, verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. This is the Lord's word. If you'll bow with me, friends, we'll ask the Lord for his help again. Again, Father, we thank you for this evening and I thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, for this record that it um, instructs us in the way that we should go. We ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom as we listen to these things and as we consider our own lives, how these things might indeed even apply to us where we sit here in Lander and in Washakie. We ask for your blessing to be upon us, and we pray that you will help us by your spirit now to understand your word and to faithfully proclaim it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been examining Acts 13. Um, And it is the record of the first missionary journey. And as we've seen, the Lord directed his church to set apart for him Barnabas and Saul for the work to which he had called them. And they are sent by the Spirit of God, who is the efficient cause, and by the church as the instrumental cause. The Lord used the church to send his chosen instruments to go and bear testimony and witness of who he is. And they go. Barnabas, Saul, and John. They go to Seleucia and then to Cyprus. And while on the island of Cyprus, they go to the towns of Salamis on the east and they make their way through the whole island as far as Paphos. Luke has recorded that they have been met with opposition by a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name is Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus. And it was important, and we brought this point out, it's important to remember as we consider witnessing to others and carrying forward the gospel as a church that we will be met with opposition. We will be met with opposition. But as we were reminded several weeks back, the battle is the Lord's and his word will accomplish all that he designs for it to accomplish. Our job as the Lord's people is to be faithful to hold up the truth of Jesus Christ. That's the job of the church So as we proceed into this chapter, Luke now records for the church the message that was preached, giving to us an example of what mission work should be. And we are shown first to whom Paul, Barnabas, and John would end up going. And so as we look at verses 13 through 15, it would seem like there's a lot of little facts, a lot of little nuances. And and what do we make of these things, this little tittle-tattle type of stuff that you know we're looking here and in verse 16 um, down towards uh, through verse 41 we see here this magnificent sermon but there's a whole lot that takes place there's a whole lot of traveling and record that is recorded here in verses 13 through 15 and so 
as Luke is recording where they went, we also see here there is a method to Paul's missionary mindset. There is a method here to what he is doing. And I think it bears uh, good instruction for us as we consider how we move forward with the gospel. Again, because we lean on our own understanding so often, the Lord tells us, and it, and it would seem counter, uh, counterintuitive, I would think, uh, you know what, you just go and you, you read the scriptures, you go and tell them about Jesus. Is that really enough in our high-tech age? Um, and I would argue it is. It is enough. It's what the Lord has ordained and it's what the Lord has used. Again, listen, listen here, where he says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Say it. These three, Paul, Barnabas, and John, have now put out to sea from Paphos on the western side of Cyprus, and they sail northwest, and they come to Perga and the region of Pamphylia. I want you to notice um, what, what Luke has recorded here. Up to this point, it has been Barnabas and Saul, and then they took John along with them. And then in verse 9, as we saw, as we saw but Saul, who was also known as Paul, it's the first time Paul's name is mentioned in place of Saul. And then in verse 13, we read, now Paul and his companions. It seems like a small thing, but there's actually what scholars believe is that Paul has risen here to prominence. In other words, he's the leader of the mission now. It's no longer Barnabas who's the leader of the mission. Now, this is kind of exciting to me. These are those little things that I go, ooh, this is really neat. <laughs> What's taking place here? He's risen to prominence. He's the leader of the mission. And this may account for what we read concerning John. Listen here as, as uh, we are told that they move on to Perga. Perga is a chief city on the coastal province of Pamphylia. It was set in about five miles, and it was an economically poor Roman province on the south coast of Asia Minor, which is now uh, modern Turkey. And we are not told much about this leg of the journey. No church was started. We are not told that they did any kind of work there. But what we are told is that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, that may not seem like a significant fact, but I think there's a principle here or a point to be made for us, and it's this, that in missions and the work of missions, in the work of ministry, we expect, we should expect unexpected hardships. We should expect unexpected hardships. And I don't know if that strikes you as odd, but, it, you know, all my life I have thought that the ministry is just... I, who wouldn't love it? Who wouldn't want it? And and everything's couched in such a way that everything's supposed to, you know, it's just going to be easy. We're, we've got our plans. We've got our, our demographic study. We've done all our homework. We've got plenty of money. And then something, something in, invariably falls apart. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We are expecting, this is a missions trip, you would expect additions not subtractions. <laughs> and here we have a subtraction. You know, writing back to Jerusalem or Antioch, writing back, how's it going up there? 
Well, funny you should ask. One, our, our helper, the guy who was here serving with us, he's left. It's a bit of a shock. Luke doesn't tell us here what the exact reason is, but we know that John was with them. He was a helper, and he says he left them and returned to Jerusalem. There's speculation over what has occurred here, and I'm always a little uncomfortable with speculation to delve too deeply into these kinds of things. Um, However, this event is quite significant in the life of the church, and we will see it being significant between Paul and Barnabas and their relationship regarding the second missionary journey. Paul would comment on this in Acts 15, 37, and 38. Um, Luke records, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Speculations surrounding his departure uh, range from him being sick to him being homesick. Some of the more interesting ones are that John, or John Mark, became miffed with the fact that Barnabas, who was the chief guy, gets replaced by Paul, who wasn't the chief guy. There's personal offense. Um, Mark is a cousin to Barnabas. What? Why, why do you think you're in charge now, Paul? You know, what is this? You can't just do things like this. That's one, that's one speculation. The other idea that is fairly prominent is that um, John was not in favor of primarily preaching the gospel to the Gentiles instead of the Jews. Now, I have an opinion on all of these things. Luke doesn't go into this right here. But notice that this man who is a servant, he's, he's serving alongside of Paul and Barnabas. Everything seems to be going well. They're on the mission trip. They're now sailing to the next, next portion of the, the empire where they're going to preach the gospel. And John says, I'm out of here. And we don't know it. Imagine the disappointment you would feel. And clearly, Paul believes it was a bad thing, a very bad thing, because he says that he had deserted them so we don't know but I would say it must have been something fairly serious as the apostle refuses to take John Mark on the second missionary journey <clears throat> and we'll see this uh, look into this more when we get there but notice again that John left them and returned to Jerusalem we considered last time <clears throat> when we were looking here in chapter 13 that we will face opposition from outside the church because of the gospel. We expect this, but we must not ignore the fact that we will also experience problems from within the church. John, uh, John Mark, is a brother. In time, he would prove useful to the Apostle Paul. We're told this in 2 Timothy 4.11. But here, for whatever reason, he left them. This is a difficult reality in the church with which we must come to terms. It's recorded. It's recorded for the church. The church reads it, and the church can say, oh, this kind of thing does happen, and it's disappointing. Friends, bear in mind that the only perfect one in the church is her Lord. I can't tell you how many thousands of times I've said that to people who have been upset by the hypocrites in the church, and so they leave the church altogether. And you tell them, 
you've got your eyes on the wrong one. The Lord Jesus is no hypocrite. Um, He is always uh, just. He is the only one with perfect knowledge. He is the only one uh, with perfect holiness and compassion. The rest of us bumble along, hopefully keeping the air clear, dealing with offenses and being quick to forgive. Was Paul the problem in this instance? Was he too aggressive for John? We don't know. Was Barnabas weak? Should he have stood up and said something more? We don't know. We don't know. Was John just being temperamental? Was he being homesick? Was he too young? We don't know what the situation was. But what we do know is that a guy who was very valuable and very necessary for the work of the ministry decided to go to cut and run and to go home. And he left Paul and Barnabas. Um, He deserted them, according to Paul. Friends, if we don't keep these types of things in mind, that people will fail and people in the church will fail us, Satan will use this to isolate you from the body of Christ as we've been considering in the book of Colossians. The church must keep this in mind. Ministry is fraught with many disappointments and discouragements. So what do you do when this happens? Well, when you encounter these hardships, what what should a person do? Well, notice Paul and Barnabas. Well, maybe we should go home. They don't. And I think this is a lovely principle here about missions. First, that we will, we should expect to meet with unexpected opposition. But secondly, when unexpected opposition or hurt comes, you continue to move forward. No one putting his hand to the plow looks back. And that's what we see with them, that they don't look back. They don't go, well, you know, we must have discerned the will of the Lord wrong or something like that. They don't do that. They just continue to plod forward. They move forward, uh, keeping it going. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, this is a great mindset for us to share. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Despite disappointment and hardship, we read uh, from Luke, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Again, there is a fair amount of mystery in this passage. Why did they leave Perga? Why, why, why leave Perga and move on to Pisidian Antioch? Um, one scholar suggested this, and it may have been as simple as this, that at Perga, Paul became ill with malaria and thus moved to the cooler climate in the higher elevation of Pisidian Antioch, for Paul refers to being ill when he first came to the Galatians in Galatians 4.13. That may have been a reason why they moved on from Perga, why more work wasn't done besides the disappointment with John. They decided to, to move inward. Um, but it's a fairly significant move that they make. To get where they were to travel um, in Pisidian Antioch, they had to travel for many days following the Sestris River, in that, and it's roughly 100 miles or so, that they would walk on foot and they would have to climb nearly 3,600 feet. The route that they took would be dangerous because of local bandits, and they would often attract, attack travelers in the narrow mountain passes. They'd travel into the southern region of Galatia, which is, again, modern-day Turkey, where there was the Roman colony of Antioch, not to be confused with the Antioch in Syria from which they had come. And this city... Again, Pisidian Antioch was home to numerous Greeks 
Phrygians, Romans, and Jews. The Jews had been brought to Antioch by the Seleucids in the third century before Christ. There, the Jews would have built, or did build, a synagogue and had acquainted the Gentiles with the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. So there are lots of people, and they're familiar with the scriptures, and they are ignorant of the fulfillment of the scriptures. Bear in mind that they are on foot, Paul and Barnabas, and they have traveled in the neighborhood of 100 miles. They have not been called to an easy task. Another principle is missions and ministry requires or calls to for personal sacrifice. It calls for personal sacrifice. They have not been called to an easy task. Ministry is oftentimes cumbersome and inconvenient. But remember what they're doing. Remember that there are numerous Jews and Gentiles there in this city, which is 3,600 feet elevation and nearly 100 miles away, and they would risk uh, being attacked by bandits as they walked through these mountain passes. What possesses a person to do this? They must be called of God. They're called of God, and the people, listen, people are image bearers of the Lord. They're image bearers, and they have souls that will live forever, and it is worth our efforts, and it demands that we expend the energy, the time, and the foregoing of earthly comforts, and they go. Ministry requires um, sacrifice on our behalf. We, we, we put those things aside because we realize that there was something more, and we see this in Paul and Barnabas. Just looking at these little facts tells you that would be a very difficult thing, be a difficult thing for them to do. And so they go there, and they go to the most natural place to speak concerning Jesus Christ. And we're told, and on the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. They go to the place at the time uh, when people gather, making use of the custom to advance the kingdom of God. Meaning they are doing that which we might say is most natural or the obvious thing. In missions today, uh, we hear many people um, coming up with, with missions that are not necessarily or strictly missionary endeavors. They're nice things, but they're not missionary things. Um, years ago, I had heard about a ministry of snowboarding, and I've, I have no problem with snowboarding. I have no problems with these things. But we're supposed to send this guy to go snowboard, and while he's snowboarding, he's making friends with people on the hills, and he's um, building relationships, and he's going to share the gospel. I'm going to go, that's great, but shouldn't that be everyone's job? If you like snowboarding, you should go snowboard, and you should just be a Christian witness. Um, we are Christians. We are supposed to be Christians all the time. And there's never a time we're not to be a Christian. There is no punching the clock, a time when we are free from our calling in Christ. I'm a, I'm a witness wherever I go, a faithful one or a poor one. But wherever I go, I represent the Lord. So when I'm going to a restaurant, a grocery store, or driving down Main Street, or I go to the gym, um, I am a witness there. But I wouldn't go to these places, uh, obviously, naturally, to go and share the gospel. I would go and be a witness. I would carry myself in a godly manner. But when someone's picking over avocados at Safeway, they're not thinking, gee, I wonder how my soul can be saved. They're wondering, how can I 
get the best avocado for the cheapest price. And that's what they're there for. So we are called to be witnesses. And, and there are places that we, we go and we share the gospel. And, and honestly, uh, as we're going about these things and we are carrying ourselves in a kind and courteous and honest manner when we are obedient to the established laws, people will frequently, or they may very well say, what is so different about you? And at those times, I would encourage you, open your mouth and talk. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. But you wouldn't necessarily find that the natural place to go and share the gospel. However, where they went was the most natural place to go and speak of Christ. It was Paul's custom to go to local synagogues and teach from the scriptures. And we see this repeatedly through the book of Acts, that that's where he would go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He would go to the synagogues where he would go from the scriptures and he would preach Jesus Christ. Again, why the synagogue? Simon Kistemacher writes, saying the synagogue in dispersion was a center of learning, a source of help and community needs, a place for meetings, and a court of justice. The synagogues became a part of public life in Gentile communities. To the synagogue would come Jews, converts to Judaism, God-fearers, and Gentiles who displayed an interest in the teachings, but who had not made yet a commitment All Christians are witnesses, but missions is to be quite intentional, which is what we see with Paul and Barnabas in mission. Missions must be intentional. It's not, well, let's just go somewhere and see what happens. It's let's go somewhere and tell people about Jesus Christ. They're both necessary. I'm not saying that they're not. But missions is quite intentional. We're going here with the purpose of speaking of Jesus Christ. This is what we see with the Apostle Paul and with Barnabas, what occurs in the synagogue. Again, we read, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. The synagogue service is a worship service. The law was read as well as the prophets. One scholar pointed out that the prophets weren't originally read in the synagogue service that because of an edict by Antiochus Epiphanes prohibiting the reading of the law, uh, the Jews decided, we'll we'll read the prophets then. And so it became uh, a a way of evading uh, Epiphanes' uh, edict, a way of uh, stepping around the law and being able to still read the scriptures. After he passed from the scene, they continued to keep the tradition of reading not just the law, but also the prophets. Various members in the congregation in the dispersion were appointed to read selections from the Old Testament scriptures in the Greek translations known as the Septuagint. Along with this, there was the reciting of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They would pray and there would be a sermon and a concluding benediction. It is quite a logical time and place for these two, Paul and Barnabas, to go and speak concerning the Lord. And here they would read the Law and the Prophets. And this is what is significant because we're told this very thing, regardless of all the other things that uh, scholars will tell us, Luke points this out. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. 
Christianity is a Jewish thing. In truth, there is no such thing as a New Testament Christian as if the Christianity of the New Testament is a completely different thing, totally unrelated to what has come before. That's a very interesting fact to me. This saying is helpful and insightful, which says, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. If this were not the case, it would not have made much sense for the apostle and Barnabas to have gone to the synagogue where the law and the prophets were read on the Sabbath day, where a bunch of Jews and God-fearing, scripturally informed Gentiles would gather. What, there would, what would be the point? They're not there to listen to any. There's no starting, jumping off point. There's no place to begin with this whole thing. But the fact that they're reading the law and the, the prophets means that here is a place we can start and we can take them to the finish line in Christ. And furthermore, this is exactly the idea behind the message that we will see that the Apostle Paul preaches uh, in the synagogue. We see that Paul's exhortation comes from the scriptures and points his hearers to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Once again, the goal of missions, as we will see, is to hold up Jesus Christ. Uh, we may do helpful things along the way, and we hear this often. Well, we need to dig a well, we need to give them food or medicine, and these are all very decent and, and nice things to do, and perhaps they're necessary things to do, but nothing is more necessary than giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is what Paul and Barnabas do. And I'm quite sure that they had poverty and they had all sorts of problems that they were facing as they went to these places and noticed what their focus was upon, which is something, again, that we find much in missions today that is lacking. How many times do you get something, a bill or a request for money coming across your desk and you read their mission statements? And how often do they speak of Jesus Christ? That's something to consider. As Paul and Barnabas made it a point to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. The, the interesting part here is that how do they know they will even be called upon to speak? And I find here that there is a bit of mystery. And as you think of missions, and we are to think of what actually goes on in missions, it would be best that when you make your plans, hold on to them loosely. <laughs> because I think, I think these things change frequently. How do they know they're going to be called on? We're not, we're not sure. Um, uh, about this again they read the law and the prophets and the synagogue officials sent to them saying brethren if you have any word of exhortation for the people say it the rulers uh, who were in charge in the synagogue often participated in the various parts of the liturgy and they themselves were likely uh, elders uh, Jewish elders there in Pisidian Antioch and again, there's a fair amount of mystery here of providence. You can't go where the doors aren't opened. Uh, the psalmist writes, we labor in vain unless the Lord builds the house. Here we have two men, Jewish teachers, who came into the synagogue. They take their seats. Likely, they are not at the front of the synagogue. And it's uh, uh, J.A. Alexander uh, brought this point out so beautifully. He says, you notice uh, the synagogue officials sent to them. He doesn't say to them, he sent to them. So if you imagine this sanctuary and somebody were to come in and they were just to sit in the back, right? If you were a teacher, you might expect to be sitting up here in front or 
sitting on a chair behind me and I would say, well, what do you think? Why don't you, why don't you exhort this congregation? The fact that the, the synagogue officials sent to them implies that they were sitting somewhere in the back of the synagogue by the door, that they weren't readily available. There was something about them. We, again, we don't know what it was, um, but there was something about them that, uh, for whatever reason, they, they knew that Paul and Barnabas were teachers. One reformer said it was a custom among the Jews that if anyone came to their ecclesiastical meetings who was known to have some gift of understanding scripture, they would entreat him to exercise this gift in their midst for their common edification. So here, imagine this again. They went, they're there, and there is no other teacher vying for that opportunity that day. It's Paul and Barnabas. They're there. And these men are asked to come and exhort it is God's providence who directs every creature and every action, synagogue officials, those leading the worship, the customs, the timing, uh, and these men with their gifts and knowledge of the scripture. Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And he gives them an open door to Paul and to Barnabas, who have come through arduous journeys, through great disappointment, making the best possible means, use of the means at their disposal. And here they are right now in God's providence, given this opportunity to apply the scriptures to those who do not yet know the glorious truth concerning Jesus Christ. And notice what happens. I thought about this and my hands started to sweat. What would you do if you stepped into a, a sanctuary and you went to a church on a Sunday evening or a Sunday morning, and they said, our pastor is sick and we have no one else. We heard you're a pastor. Would you come up and preach? Would I be carrying a sermon with me? How would you do this? Do you imagine what, what a terrifying thing that would have been? Um, and yet they stepped right in. You almost get the impression that they were always prepared, don't you? That they were so richly indwelt by the word of Christ, they knew the scriptures so well that they would take the scriptures and they would jump right from it and be able to lead people right to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> what do you do when the Lord gives you those opportunities? You speak. You know the Lord. You know his word enough. And you have his spirit. And while we often feel inept and unprepared, the work is the Lord's. The work is the Lord's and we speak of the Lord. We tell them who Jesus Christ is and we tell them what great things he has done. This is the work of missions. And as we, as we continue to move forward with this, we'll unfold what Paul actually says. And it's a wonderful sermon and it's very biblical and it's dry. he's drawing it straight from the scriptures so that the people will come to understand that all of the Old Testament has prepared them to understand who Jesus Christ is. But along the way, to get those opportunities to be able to speak, we oftentimes undergo much hardship and we put much personal sacrifice into these things. If we don't, I fear we don't get the opportunities to be able to speak. Let's bow and we'll thank the Lord for this. We thank you, Father, again for this night and thank you for your word and we thank you for these few verses that open up a lot to us 
of the trials and the struggles that accompany ministry. And we are so prone, Father, that when we encounter trial, we think something strange has happened to us or that we are experiencing something that no other has ever experienced. Father, we pray that you'll forgive us for these mindsets and that we would learn from your word. We ask, Father, that you would help us to handle disappointments and discouragements, and we pray that we would not stop going forward and proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Please, O oh Lord, we pray that you will bless your people and that you will bless this church and give us opportunities, I pray, to speak to many in the days, weeks, and months to come of the glories of Jesus Christ. Teach us the things you would have us learn and help us, O oh Father, to live these things out, that your word may indeed dwell richly within us. I ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.